It's the 365 Days of Astronomy podcast. Coming in three, two, one. All right, in theory, we're live. Um, as always, we require someone to externally validate our existence, uh, to let us know that we do indeed exist. Um, so come on, tell me. Oh, there we go. Someone just said that we're live, so I can only assume that we exist. Um, so what's, what do people have planned for the holidays this year? Anyone? Brian? Keeping warm. You're going to keep warm? It's just gotten cold here and snowy and... Yeah, I, I plan on on having a good hefty pint and and staying inside. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're just uh, we're just gonna try and stay dry here. It doesn't yeah, get that cold it just gets so wet. Yep. <clears throat> oh, um, have uh, has anyone else watched The Expanse yet? We gobbled up all of season four in oh. three days. All gone. Not yet. Four episodes. You're four, four episodes you're four episodes in, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. so good. Yeah, we're watching we're watching the next one after this, so so yeah, you know we can't we can't do any uh, streaming cheating with my spouse. <laughs> yeah, the, some some shows are just like completely off limits. Yeah, yeah, that's no. exactly it. Yeah, absolutely. We have the same we have the same situation. Um, but the Expanse is one. You know, Rick and Morty. Like Carla got really ahead on like Peaky Blinders, and she's watched. Uh, Vikings, but you know, no, the expanse that's forbidden. <clears throat> yeah, the expanse is forbidden. Yeah, and and I mean, Carla is even more draconian about it. She wants them to just keep working forever, that they should not be allowed to take breaks, they should just keep making more shows. <laughs> <clears throat> so, Uh-oh. my wife went to this isn't for book four, I gotta start reading book five. <laughs> I'm going to say hi to a bunch of people. Hi to Andy Cowley, Astro B, Bob Moeller, Christian Woodland, Dan Niles, Daniel McCool, David Dunn, David Fairweather, Ian Farkeron, Janelle Duncan, Johnny J, Larry Beckham, Nancy Graziano, Nifty, that's awesome, uh, Paranor, uh, PsychoCat749, Rich Wilson, Tom Van Scotter, Tony Flucha, and Zapfen Zapfen. Hey, everybody. So uh, well, I guess we'll talk about, we'll talk about Starliner in the, uh, in the actual show. Uh, and, and I don't know if you saw, um, uh, snow crash has been announced. They're going to make, uh, that's going to be on HBO max, I think, you know, from, uh, Stevenson, Neil Stevenson, which is like one of my favorite books. Um, and they're doing the culture series on Amazon and they're doing the foundation series on Amazon. Yeah. I didn't hear about the culture series. Yeah. Okay. Excited. Yeah, yeah. Or, or horrified. I don't know which I don't, to do. Yeah, I don't know. It's a tough one, right? <laughs> Might be worth trying Amazon again. Wow. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, actually, you know, uh, it's weird. Like, pound for pound, actually, Amazon has the most TV and movies, especially, like, cool hmm. documentaries than than any of them, even more than Netflix now. Maybe that's just in Canada, but it's kind of amazing how much content is actually available on Amazon hmm. now. Maybe that changed because we just saw everything that was cool. You had to pay for extra. So, yeah. Yeah. No, no. But I mean, you, you can pay to get even more. Like you can watch like here in Canada, you could, you can watch Rick and Morty through uh, an extension to Amazon, but you do have to pay like an extra 10 bucks a month to get TV shows. Okay. Got yeah. it. Yeah. We so do that. we just tried the free trial. Yeah, but no, just the just like with your Prime membership, you get a ton yeah. of stuff. So apparently, Pamela is going to join us. Um, but I will uh, that by we already have Pam, but another Pamela will be joining us. So uh, we will uh, go from there. Um, yeah, Horizon Brave is saying I don't know. I found most of Amazon's library as pretty lame. Yeah, so go. There's a service that I use called Just Watch. And so if you go to Just Watch and then you just select Amazon Prime and then you can filter it. So just show anything that gives, say, 80% Rotten Tomatoes and seven uh, 
a seven or higher on Internet Movie Database, it'll filter the whole library down to – but still five or 700 movies, documentaries, stuff from different countries. It's kind of amazing. So um, I – Amazon, and again, maybe that's just a Canadian thing. I don't know whether you you have less stuff in the U.S., but the uh, the amount of just like great like we watched lots of uh, translated stuff stuff from other countries. It's great. A lot of documentaries were wildly entertained all the time by what we could find on all of them. Too much. In fact, I'm I'm getting to the point now where I'm gonna I'm gonna I want to try the experiment of just cutting everything and just going one per month. Just rotate. So this month we only get Disney Plus, and then the next month we only get Netflix. So, but then I don't have the guts because then when like say, um, uh, The Witcher comes out, I'm like, oh, I just want to watch The Witcher, so. <laughs> <laughs> which is like tomorrow Friday. I think The Witcher comes out. Yeah. All right, Pamela, you're gonna have to join us when we uh, in mid transit. So let's uh, let's get started. All right. There's me. Here's my intro. All right. Hello and... Ow. <laughs> my desk. Hello and welcome to the Weekly Space Hangout for Wednesday, December 18th, 2019. This might be the last episode, I forget, of the, of the year. I'm Fraser Kane, publisher of Universe Today. Uh, this week, we're going to be talking about solar eclipse, meteor shower, auroras on Mars, and whatever Pamela wants to talk about. Uh, we don't know. Uh, joining me today, we've got Dr. Brian Koberlein. Brian, welcome back. Hi. Thank you for having me again. And we've got Pam Hoffman. Hi, Pam. Hello. And Pamela Gay is going to be showing up, so when she does show up, then uh, we will... Uh, continue the uh, the introduction with her but before we get into the main guest this week i want to give a big shout out as always to our good friends at the weekly space hangout crew these are our producers these are our uh schedulers and they are of course the great community that talks about the show and tells us what they want to what topics we want to talk about and we really couldn't do the show without them. So if you want to join this amazing community, go to wshcrew.space. They'll give you access to all of the cool tools so that you too can be the executive producer of this show. Uh, and then you can uh, be my boss like everybody else is. All right. Uh, joining us this week, we've got uh, Anita Gale from the National Space Society. Anita, welcome to the Weekly Space Hangout. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure being here. So you are, uh, we actually had your president on uh, just a couple of uh, months ago. Um, but uh, for people who don't know, uh, who are you and, and what do you do? So uh, I, uh, I'm a retired Boeing engineer. I worked on the space shuttle program from before it started flying until after it stopped flying. Um, that makes that puts me in a kind of vintage for a woman engineer where when I was in college at the University of Washington, oh, by the way, go dogs in the Las Vegas Bowl on Saturday. <laughs> I'll be there. Um, when I was in college, engineering enrollment of women passed 1%. So I was first woman, only woman, most vintage woman, and most everything I did in my career. And I retired from the Boeing commercial crew program um, in uh, 2016. Uh, actually, uh, well, it was one of those things where I was doing everything on time. It was a fixed price contract. So, uh, well, it happens in the aerospace industry. I got laid off because I'm, I was my reward for doing everything on right, time. Right. You, you were um, done. And so then they need to wait for everybody else. That's yeah. how much fun the aerospace industry is. Yeah. I'm still friends with my, with my boss. It's OK. Um, and uh, in my copious free time, uh, starting in 1984, uh, I was asked by the um, uh, National Explorers Sc uh, Conference, the Engineering Cluster, Science and Engineering Cluster of National Exploring Conference. Uh, it's kind of like uh, a, a Boy Scouts Jamboree, except it's for the, the Explorer Scout kids. I was asked to do a program on Thursday, cool all day about space for their conference. And that ended up being a space settlement design competition where we had, at that point, 75 kids. And we gave them a challenge to design a space settlement. And over 
all of those decades since 1984, we've been doing this a lot of years. This has now grown. Space settlement design competitions have grown into something that is global. We have semifinals all around the world. I travel to them. We have four semi. Well, we will have four semifinals in the United States. We have a finalist competition at Kennedy Space Center, and uh, we are uh, a a space contest. We also are, are an incredible STEM activity. We do steer kids into science and engineering and other STEM careers. And and how we run the competition is we run it run it as an industry simulation. So we make the, the experience as close to being on an industry proposal team in the space business as possible. Um, so kind of in a nutshell. <laughs> so then what is like, you know, when the various, uh, when the students come forward and how do you define what the goals are that they're trying to accomplish? So what are their marching orders? Okay, so we give them a program book, and there are two kinds of competitions. One they do in their school. We call that the qualifying competition. They have several months. But most students get involved through live competitions, a weekend. Uh, they'll come on a Friday. We talk to them about what's going to happen to them that weekend. We give them some what we call technical training. Uh, we give them a program book with about 14 pages of what we call future history. We literally describe in a certain year. Let's say it's 2059. And we'll say in 2059, there are solar power satellites, there are people living in space, there's commodities being produced on the moon. It's an ambitious future history, but we define that. We define subcontractors producing commodities and services. And then we give them a, a request for proposals. So this would be like an industry. You respond to a customer that puts out an RFP or a request for proposal. I, for instance, worked on the RFPs for commercial crew. I worked on the RFP. I'm sorry, I worked on proposals answering the NASA RFP for commercial crew, cargo resupply services, uh, space shuttle upgrades. Um, so I basically have translated my experience in industry into an event for students. Right. So you you give them sort of the landscape of these are the things that you can assume that you have at your disposal, that there are that when you request a pile of raw metal, it will show up at some reasonable expense, that there are places that you can get your your various volatiles, et cetera. Um, so then, okay, so they understand they've got this sort of environment, and then what are they required to design? So we, uh, the RFP is for designing a, either a space settlement or a space habitat. Now, when we say habitat, uh, we'll define maybe 300 to 600 people. When we say space settlement, we've uh, most of our scenarios are between ten and twenty five thousand people. Wow! Every one of them, yeah, oh yeah. This is where we're going O'Neill and bigger. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, we've actually had a scenario where it was uh, at initial operating capability, it was about fifteen thousand people, and they had to allow for expansion up to eighty thousand people. <laughs> so we really challenged them. Um, they they need to think about. Uh, well, we we actually divide the RFPs, and we also give them an organization chart. So we have these students working in groups of about 50. We give them a real manager from industry to be their CEO. And then we have a kid president, two kid vice presidents, and four departments. So it, it, they're really learning how to work in an organization chart, which, interestingly enough, we're realizing is not taught in business school. Working in an organization chart means understanding what your department has to produce that other departments need and what you need to acquire from other departments. And Business school teaches you how to operate in an organization at the tippy top, not not in the bottom of a hundred and eighty thousand right. person companies. Yeah, <laughs> that's what we teach. So um, the uh, RFP is divided into requirements for what we call structural engineering, which is the overall design of the settlement, operations engineering, which is basically infrastructure, uh, communication, agriculture, transportation, uh, power, those sorts of things. Human engineering is incredibly important. Um, that is not just spacesuits and safety, but also uh, has to do with community design and housing design and diet, that sort of thing. And for the kids who are only interested in computers and robots, we have what we call automation engineering. And so then how are they, how are they judged? So, they, again, they design a habitat for 15,000 people, uh, maybe up to 80,000 people. You've got resources that are going to be available from space. What is what are they expected to to come up with? So the, the RFPs are, um, depending on the scenario, three to four pages long, uh, one-inch margins, um, single line of text, I mean, single-spaced text. 
So there's a lot of information, a lot of requirements in the request for proposal. We may ask for things, well, we'll ask for the normal things. You, you cannot have a settlement without air, water, food, that kind of stuff. <laughs> right. Um, it's yeah. either a settlement on a surface, it might be on an asteroid or the moon or Mars, or we actually have some really bizarre scenarios that go to, go to Mercury and Venus. That's a whole other thing. Um, we have orbital settlements. We have settlements in Aldrin cycler orbits between Earth and Mars for transportation purposes. Um, but we'll throw in, in every one of them, we'll throw in some little little kickers. So there might be a settlement on the moon that, that requires an amusement park. What would you do for entertainment on the moon? Right. Well, that's a requirement for structural engineering. Where do you put that? Automation engineering, you probably need some automation. You need some safety right. and human engineering. And then the thing needs power. So it, it involves all of the departments. Uh, so there's an example of one requirement that affects a, a lot of different things. And... We'll throw that in for some scenarios and not for others. So the kids don't know until they arrive. And so then how much time is. how much time do they have to actually put together their proposal? In a in a standard semifinal, they'll get that RFP about ten thirty Saturday morning. And by seven thirty Sunday morning, they have to have the design done, the briefing charts prepared and ready to present to the judges. So if they don't eat and don't sleep, they've got twenty one hours. <laughs> Right. And, and yet a lot of them don't sleep. <laughs> right. No, sleep is optional. You, you know, and a lot of our volunteers don't sleep either. <laughs> right, right. And so then, and, and for the number of years that this has been happening, I, I'm hoping that you've been just genuinely amazed at what the ingenuity and some of the ideas that have come out of this competition. Well, um, less so than you would think. They are struggling so much just to meet the requirements. Right. We, I, I, go to a lot of, yeah, I go to a lot of conferences, and I know the people who are, especially through National Space Society, um, and the design competition is considered a project of National Space Society. But through NSS, uh, through some of our conferences and AIAA and other conferences, I'm seeing a lot of the, the ideas that are, are coming out already. So we literally feed those ideas to the kids. Um, there are a few, a few really innovative ideas that the kids have come up with. You're probably familiar with mass drivers from the mm -hmm, O'Neill sure. days. Um, a kid came up with the idea that you can use mass drivers, not just, especially with modern technology, not just for flinging stuff off the moon, but also we have the avionics now where we can direct something onto the track of a mass driver and slow it down. Right. That idea came from a kid. I didn't come up with that one. It's like, well, yeah, that's brilliant. <laughs> right. Just run it in reverse. Exactly. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. yeah. It's like so the regenerative braking on a on an electric car. Exactly. Yes. Yep. And and so, that uh, might be and, and and so like as a source of power, like yeah. electricity. Oh, that's really smart. That's of course a, it's smart. Yeah, yeah, it's such a great idea. But we don't get many of those. Mostly we are feeding them ideas. So we'll right. teach them about space elevators. And I know that people like Pete Swan, who works on space elevator concepts. So we're, um, we're delivering a lot of ideas to them, and then they, they need to turn those ideas into a, a design that's functional. You know, one of the big arguments that, that we get in this world now, uh, of people who are space nerds, is, you know, planets versus space itself. And I don't know if you can see behind me, I have a poster that says gravity wells are for suckers. So, you know, once you've left a gravity well, like why would you go back into another one? Are you crazy? They're, they're, they're for suckers. But still, um, do you think that, you know, based on the logistics that, that has happened so far, do you feel like it's going to be that more people are going to live on planets and the moons and things like that, or more people are going to be out in space itself? Wow, that's one of those those oh I'm sorry. That that's one of those great questions. Now now there are going to be at least habitats on on the moon and other material sources, especially the moon. Uh I'm excited about the back side of the moon, the lunar highlands. The front side of the moon is mostly basalt. We know what that is. The back side of the moon is virgin territory that's been pummeled by everything the universe can throw at it. And there's probably some bizarre chemistry back there. There may be some products that we can sell back on Earth and justify the transportation costs. Um, the, the moon is a great source for, and I know people are working on this for real, air and water mm -hmm. and, and um, a lot of the commodities. And literally in the National Space Society, we're, we're seeing an expectation that commodities will be provided from the moon. So you'll need people 
on the moon providing those commodities. I, I, in the design competition scenarios, we, we project or we tell the students that the really big settlements, uh, the, the commercial banking center, the manufacturing facility, those will be orbital. Um, we, in the competition, we define um, L5 orbit as uh, kind of the uh, commercial sector and L4 is the rust belt of space. Mm-hmm. So uh, put all put all those dirty manufacturing facilities and refineries in L4. <laughs> so why the difference between L4 and, and L5? What's the what's the preference one way or the other? Or is it just a way to sort it? it it's it just kind of developed over time. The, the idea is uh, sometimes we have subtle little reasons for doing things. And one of the reasons for doing that is we have zoning laws in a lot of cities in the United States. Now, I, I live in a little town called Nassau Bay that's right next to Houston. Houston has no zoning laws. And it's a mess. <laughs> so you figure it's uh, when there's a lot of industrialization, those refineries, those manufacturing facilities might have some escapes and some debris. Um, they, they could get messy. They could get dirty. So you really don't want people uh, living there in their retirement communities and their universities. That's the theory anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that how it will develop? I have no idea. But partly we're trying to, to show the kids that there is a reason for having some organization in what you do in space. Right, right. Um, <clears throat> it's got to be tough, though, you know, with the time that you spent working on spaceflight and then how your imagination gets to soar when you look at these um, these settlement ideas and then you match it to sort of where we currently are and it's been 50 years since the apollo landings and so on um how do you feel about all of the stuff that you see today with like reusable rockets from spacex and some of the new interesting launchers and so on it's like that all should have happened 30 years ago yeah no i mean really um i the I'm right here. I, I'm, I can walk to Johnson Space Center from here. So there were a lot of 50th anniversary of Apollo celebrations. And I actually hosted one uh, at my house and I went to one other. But I was bummed out that whole two weeks because it's like, we should be doing this on the moon. Yeah. Why are we stuck here? We went to the moon and we quit going. That's just dumb. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think, I mean, space is hard. You should know, yeah. Um, yeah. And 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 I'm, and also space is an expense. Like for the, it's going to take a long time before before there's any business model that makes any kind of of sense. And so it's just going to be this place in the sky where we dump money, right? Until until somehow somebody figures it out. But it could take a long time. What what kind of infrastructure do, would you imagine sort of starting to come together that would let us know that we are turning a corner to creating a truly space sort of base civilization? So, um, of course, I've got my finger on the pulse of this, and I've been going to the conferences. I'd say about two and a half, three years ago, uh, we started seeing some serious interest in uh, on-orbit repair of satellites, uh, on-orbit refueling, on-orbit, re- on-orbit repair. And honestly, that looks like it'll be kind of a trigger for starting uh, economic activity with people in space. Um, I, I honestly think that, and I know folks who are looking at this, I honestly think that having access to lunar resources and starting to make commodities from lunar resources is going to open that door. Yeah, that was um, a big part of O'Neill's plan. Like the whole yeah. O'Neill cylinders really relied yeah. on them digging up all that regolith and, and right. encasing their settlements inside them. How, however, one of the things that, that really needs to be resolved, and the space lawyers have been looking at this for 35 years or 40 that I know of, is you know where it's coming, property rights. If somebody establishes a lunar facility for making air, water, metal, whatever it is, uh, and they don't know that it's their facility as long as they occupy it, if they don't know right. that that they own that, uh, we aren't going anywhere. If if the Chinese can just come in, oh, I'm sorry, that's my phone. If the Chinese, <laughs> that landline, I was going to hang that up, and I, I goofed. Um, but if the, if the Chinese can just march on in and take over something by force, um, yeah. I do apologize. Yeah, <laughs> no, I know like the, the Outer Space Treaty, sort of at this point right now, the Outer Space Treaty defines that, that it's, you can't own anything, 
right? Yeah. And so everyone, if if you make a space station, then anyone can come and use it. And if you find a, a, a I don't know, a place of with a lithium reserve, anyone can come and dig into your lithium reserve and, and mine it themselves. And so obviously here on, on planet Earth, property rights and ownership of, of you know, mineral claims and things like that is really the economic engine. Uh, and so you can imagine, but, but I mean, it's sort of like, it's so pie in the sky right now. I can imagine at a certain point when it gets real, then lawyers will buckle down and, and, and sort this out. Um, I hope so. So, um, it, part of it we're seeing also is there's a difference in the European view versus the American view. The American view is based on the, um, uh, the, the uh, homestead laws of the American West. There was a guy, he's now passed away, a guy named Klaus Heiss that I knew through American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics, who was who proposed how property rights could work. We actually incorporate this into the design competition as well. Um, and he suggested if if you occupy and work a an asteroid that's up to 10 miles in diameter or a patch of ground that's 10 miles by 10 miles, if you are actively working it like a mining claim in the American West, uh, then it's yours as long as you work it. You abandon it, and it, if you're if you're not there for two years, then it's it's not yours any longer. Um, and that actually, according to Klaus, was based on the the original code of laws by a, a, a Babylonian king, Hammurabi. <laughs> you can look him up. <laughs> wow, he'd be um, proud and, to know. Yeah, he would. Um, and, and I've actually been accused of being American-centric by, by suggesting that the, uh, the property rights of American homesteading law would be uh, uh, useful in space. On, on the other hand, the Europeans haven't had the experience of homesteading or anything like that for a few thousand years right. because all of Europe has been owned. Right, um, right. We Americans have had that experience, the Australians as well. I'm not ex- exactly sure how their laws yeah. work. Um, so, um, it's something that needs to re- be resolved and that, that will be a very important event. So I, I don't know whether you already answered the next question that I had for you, but which is like, what do you think is going to be the toughest nut to crack of oh. this? Oh, that's an easy one. Lunar dust. Really? Really? Oh, it's awful stuff. Yeah. So it really only... Let's say I only really became aware of how incredibly nasty that stuff is maybe eight, six, eight, ten years ago. Mm-hmm. And what started coming out is the Apollo spacesuits were, were trashed. The longest any of them was out on the surface was maybe 24 hours. They came back with abrasions and, and joints that were frozen and joints that were leaking Um it just a mess and and people designed them as best they could for what they thought was coming right but the lunar dust has not been blown around it's not rounded it's 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 like shards of glass yeah yeah and it gets into everything you can't brush it off actually airlock design is one of the things we challenge the kids with and and we're hoping somebody will come up with a design but it's uh, it's 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 a horrible problem and it's one of those things that until we actually have people living on the moon and facing this problem every day, until we have that, we're not going to solve it. People right. just literally be there to fix it. If, if lunar dust wrecks your airlocks in three days, <laughs> uh, it's going to be hard yeah. to survive. And, and not to mention it getting into your lungs and and giving everybody all kinds of respiratory illnesses. Like it's yeah, and I, we've done a few articles on on this, and it's just it really looks like a nightmare. The astronauts were suffering from it on their way home. And that's interesting. It, it, you know, I've heard recommendations like, you know, maybe we're just going to have to, uh, sweep, <laughs> like we're going to have to maintain a clean area that doesn't have a lot of dust. And, you know, you pave it to try and minimize that dust. And it could very well be that, that it's a showstopper. It's so nasty that it causes yeah. so much damage to everything that you try to do there. Every piece of machinery, every moving part, just gets torn up by the scrapes and you know uh, scratches from the stuff. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I I'm going to do more more digging into it. I've already sort of been freaked out by it, but I clearly need to to. If you're if this is the thing that worries you the most, then clearly I need to go deeper. That's, so that's my big yeah. thing. This sounds unrelated, but I I do raft trips down Grand Canyon, so we camp on 
uh, Colorado River silt. And that is much coarser than lunar dust and much less abrasive. Yeah. And by the end of a week, it is in everything. Yes. It, is, it is in your food. It's in your clothes. It's in, in absolutely yeah. everything. You can't get rid of it. And, and that's mild compared yeah. to lunar dust. Oh, terrific. Uh, well, Anita, we could uh, have this conversation all day, but, uh, but I know I've got to let you go. Um, but where can people find out more and how can people join the competition for upcoming years? We have a website, uh, pretty easy. Um, I'll say it and then I'll spell it, www.spaceset.org. Uh, www org are really easy to spell, but Space Set is just, it's a truncation of space settlement. So yep. all one word, S-P-A-C-E-S-E-T. Uh, there is a registration page there so people can um, sign up as teams or individuals. Um, and uh, that kind of directs people to the right continent. <laughs> and uh, from there, we'll get you in touch with whoever you need to uh, get in touch with to get involved with semifinals or qualifying competition in the u.s we have qualifying going on right now so school teams can sign up for qualifying and we will send them an rfp and some background information and away they go and that those proposals it's a 40-page written proposal with a design that's uh, due in april wonderful there, there are some schools that incorporate our qualifying competition into their curriculum, their high school curriculum. Oh, that sounds great. Uh, man, I, I should have done this when I was younger. Oh, a lot of our volunteers say that. <laughs> yeah, I know. That sounds awesome. All right. Well, again, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. It's uh, really inspiring. I can't wait for us to find out how bad the Mars and moon dust is. Oh, yeah. All right. Just so we don't kill anybody on the way. Thank you yeah. so much. All right. It's a lot of fun. Take care. appreciate it. Bye. Bye. All right, let's move on to the news portion of our show. And I see that uh, Dr. Pamela Gay just showed up. Um, Pamela, you get, to go, you get to go first. Oh, you're muted again. Sorry. Hello, everyone. I am clearly not to be trusted with the mute button. No. Uh, this has been an incredibly, an incredible news week for me personally because the OSIRIS-REx mission has announced the uh, sample site and secondary sample site uh, for their well plunge down to the surface of Bennu. The primary site that they're hoping to go to is Nightingale. Um, it is in the northern hemisphere. It's a bit more difficult to get to, but this crater within a crater is one that appears to have a high diversity of materials inside of it, and it appears to be nice and small and granular and easy to get um, with our angry vacuum cleaner with which the surface of Bennu shall be attacked. So I'm going to, I'm going to bring up the actual uh, landing site here so people can, so people can see, I'll share it at you just so you, so you can just talk people through it. Cause, cause this is, this is crazy. This was the best they, they could do. Yes. So, so <laughs> that is tight. Here is where I need to remind everyone that, first of all, this is not a rock anyone requested. Bennu is a rubble pile asteroid. And what we have learned is when you say rubble pile asteroid, it does not actually mean that you have an asteroid that's been broken up into like 10 or 12 pieces. It means that you have rocks on rocks with boulders on boulders and rocks on the boulders. Right. And, and, and so and, you're looking at this and it really is just this like tiny little spot that's got like a little bit of sand surrounded by gigantic spacecraft killing boulders. And and all four of the potential sample sites were actually craters. And this is because craters are the places where a different bigger space rock came in and crunched things up and down a little to make a slightly bigger, clear-ish space. <laughs> and this is why there's a secondary site as well, because the the uh, spacecraft of Cyrus-Rex has onboard hazard mitigation software that is fully capable of going, oh, expletive, we're about to break everything. A boarding landing, or it's not a landing, a boarding tagging the, the asteroid and grabbing a sample 
And um, there's enough fuel on board and enough uh, nitrogen gas, which is what they use to blast the surface to stir up stuff into the sampling device, um, that they can do multiple attempts. And the secondary site, Osprey, is one that's much easier to get to. It's along the equator. Um, It does have a ginormous boulder right on the edge of it, which is a bit intimidating, I will say. But if they do have to go to Osprey, this is a site that has been shown to have carbon minerals in it. And we are, after all, hoping that we will find organics. Now, is is that why, like, it looks like this sort of dark blotch on the surface yes. of, of, the, of the asteroid. And so that's how they know it has carbon in it? Well, they, they actually uh, did reflection spectra. So you look at sunlight hitting the rocks, and then you see what colors of light reflect back. And different minerals have different reflection spectra. So we can differentiate between different kinds of minerals based on how they reflect sunlight. So we have two possible regions, um, one of them a little sketchier than the other. But good science should hopefully be happening. Now, we're going to have to wait a bit. There is going to be a rehearsal around the New Year's this year, but the actual sampling won't be happening until the end of next year. So uh, can you, I mean, a lot of the people that are watching this show were some of the volunteers that helped find this landing spot. So how much work went into that? How many rocks were categorized? Do you have some some sort of sense of the enormous scale that it took to be able to find these landing spots? I do, and I'm going to be working on data visualizations for this tomorrow. And we are currently awaiting approvals to announce the names of the people who marked these sites. Um, We had over 3,500 people each mark at least one image each. And images took anywhere from 15 to 45 minutes to mark. Right. So so this isn't like a lot of the citizen science projects that are out there where you're just like, click, okay, I'm done with this image. Click, done with this image. No, this was painstaking agony-inducing work that these people did. We had seven individuals who marked over a 1,000 images each. They actually did secondary marking of the four sample sites, looking at the high-resolution images. Now, the reason these seven were selected is they had so many images that it was really easy to run the stats and show that their work was pretty much on par with what we were getting from the scientists. So... Our citizen scientists rocked out the rocks. Altogether, these 3,500 people marked over 14 million things. So there, we know of 14 million things on it, it, Bennu. It's, it's more like we know of 1 million things because each image was viewed by 15 people. So, so things were mapped made, multiple times. Right. right okay. But... This is a small asteroid. This would, like, fit on a big city block. It's 500 meters across. I have the capacity to run the diameter of this this asteroid. Um, And so finding a million of anything on an object this small is kind of impressive. Yeah, it's like the best mapped place in the solar system. Or most completely. Yeah. And, and yeah, we know more about this rock than we know about the Earth in totality when you think about the oceans and such. Yeah. Doing the statistics on this is something that is going to take a long time. And I'm looking forward to getting the chance to do. And um, it's really kind of an amazing discovery process that we've gotten to go through. And it was the citizen scientists. It was science teams around the world using a variety of different um, detectors trying to find, well, where do we have the most interesting spectra? Where do we have the most interesting science? And we did it, folks. We did the thing. Yeah. And it's funny. We watched that rocket launch. We did. We were there in person. Yeah, in person to watch this thing launch. And then... You know, 3,500 of our closest friends mapped this thing to within an inch of its, literally an inch of its life. And and now the spacecraft's job is to safely collect a sample and bring it back home to Earth. And to bring back uh, a significant chunk of, of asteroid material. Uh, I can't wait. This is so great. I, I can't wait either. Yeah. It's really kind of amazing. Yeah. All right. Uh, 
the other Pam, Pam Hoffman, uh, tell us about some upcoming eclipses. Hi there. Thanks so much, Frazier. Um, you know, for me, I like to talk about stuff you can do uh, from where you are. And uh, we talked about the investment last time, uh, very big news. But what I want to talk about today is this annular solar eclipse. Now, an annular eclipse means the moon is too far away to completely cover the sun. In this case, you need a filter the whole entire time. You cannot leave. Right. Don't leave it with equipment. your eyes. Right. You want to protect yourself. And so this will be a ring of sunlight that appears around the basically new moon. It'll, it'll appear dark. Uh, and, you know, one day they're all going to be annular eclipses. The moon moves away from the Earth about one centimeter a year. For viewers in the United States, this is going to be a very nice Christmas present. It starts <laughs> in the evening on December the 25th. And basically, it's going to be something you can see by webcam in the United States. For our area, I'm in Southern California, about 6.30 p.m. on Christmas Day, we can start to see uh, things by webcam, including the partials, you know, places they're only going to see a partial eclipse for this. And the maximum is about 917 here. That's uh, midnight Eastern. So we're going, we're heading into December the 26th. It ends December 26th, 12.05 a.m. here, 3.05 a.m. in the Eastern uh, time zone. And that's the end of the partials. So there's like partial, full, maximum partial and uh so what it means though is that this is happening in the opposite part of the world the central path goes through saudi arabia southern india sumatra borneo the philippines guam northern sri lanka part of the indian ocean indonesia and part of the pacific ocean Uh, the partial eclipse aspect of it will be in parts of eastern europe most of asia North and West Australia and Eastern Africa. There's a really great animation on timeanddate.com. I just did a search for December 2019 eclipse and I found that and more. Uh, the live coverage is available. They've already started to count down. Um, uh, on, it's a YouTube channel and I just put in watch December 2019 eclipse live. And, you know, generally there's like four to six eclipses a year. Next year, there are six, two are the going to be solar type eclipses and four are going to be moon type eclipses. And we've got total, partial, annular, penumbral. People chase these things yeah. all around the world. It's amazing. Did you catch the eclipse that happened uh back in 2017 oh yeah yeah Yeah, we here in southern california just had a partial eclipse for that but yeah we went out and looked it was great oh you didn't you didn't drive to the totality line in in no no i didn't go anywhere else and you know i set up around home so that my neighbors can come and look too so and and just by the way the next major one here in the united states will be april of 2024 so uh, right. no <laughs> no time to waste right yeah no i'm i'm already planning uh i i think i'll be in texas for this one oh very cool yeah so it's going to pass like right through austin i've got a bunch of friends there so i think i'm going to i think i'm going to go for you, for texas you get the filters and stuff before that you're not going to risk you know finding shady deals <laughs> <laughs> no no i we had a we had a good line on 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 glasses last time for the 2017 eclipse. So I'm, I'm pretty excited though, because we, uh, and Pamela was, was with me, uh, the other Pamela, um, yeah. uh, we were there for the, uh, for the 2017 one. And we were at the place of maximum, uh, duration, nice. but big cloud showed up right, right in the ah. middle. And we didn't get a chance to really see all of totality. Just like the, I got to see like the last few seconds and Pamela, you didn't see anything, right? So that's oh, two. I saw nothing. Yeah, that's two no. solar eclipses for you down. So we've got to, you know, we'll, 
we'll nail the 2024 one. Um, there's also a meteor shower coming up, right? Yeah, that's going to be the uh, 21st. It's fairly minor, and they don't, they're not going to have too many, you know, uh, per minute kind of, um, you know, viewings. Let's see, I got some notes here. That was the, the eclipse was the main thing. Yeah, this is the Ursids meteor shower. Uh, and shoot, I had something about how many. It's, it's only like 15 to 20 right. an hour. I mean, you know, one a minute is pretty hard. When they say 60 an hour, that's pretty hard to wait. Yeah. Uh, in, especially now with the, you know, computers go super fast and we've yeah. got mobile devices we carry everywhere. But yeah, this will be just 15 to 20 Right. An hour, right. so kind of minor, but again, it'll be worldwide at least. Yeah. Um, and you want to look like after midnight, right. after the the Earth has you know turned into the debris field. I think that's from the Temple. Um, awesome. Uh, comet. Yeah. Yeah, and and you know, like my favorite is the is the Perseids, uh, mostly because it's warm in the northern hemisphere for the ah, Perseids. You know, they're not sure. the best yeah. one, but the but the big one, like I saw the Leonids back, and I think it was two thousand and one, and it was or it was a meteor full on meteor storm, and I was in the middle oh, of very cool. Vancouver, like the city of Vancouver, horrible light pollution, and I saw just tons and tons wow, of really I'd love bright to see meteors. That. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, if you can get a chance to see a meteor storm. So every now and then, astronomers will say, this could be a meteor storm. And whenever yeah. they say that, like I always recommend, like, go out and check it out. Because when it is a meteor storm, it's unbelievable. Yeah, there was one recently. We did try and get out in the field, but yeah. we couldn't see anything. Yeah, it ended up being, and that was one of those situations where it turned out to be a false alarm. But you never know, right? Sometimes it is. Right. And the one that, that, that one, the, the, the 2001 meteor storm was absolutely, you know, as bright. Was it 90? I'm sure it was 2003, 2001. Anyway, really bright, really great. Um, definitely cool. check out, check it out. All right. Uh, yeah. Last but not, le- not least, uh, Dr. Brian Koberlein, what do you got for us? So uh, I have one on an interesting thing on Aurora on Mars. And uh, this kind of has a a connection to science fiction in the uh, TV series Expanse. There's a little moment where they talk about the Aurora on Mars, that it's odd to see them. And, And it would be because when we think of Aurora here on Earth, they are... Uh, colorful, they can fill the night sky, and that's because we have a strong magnetic field, charged particles from the solar wind go spiraling along the magnetic field and then hit our nice thick atmosphere, and so we get all these bright colors. And Mars right now doesn't have that. There aren't visible aurora on Mars, but uh, there are uh, ultraviolet aurora, and they're, they're called proton aurora. And basically what it happens is when the uh, solar wind strikes Mars, uh, there is hydrogen in the upper atmosphere of Mars. The solar protons smack into them. When the electrons recombine, they create ultraviolet light. And uh, this has been picked up by the MAVEN satellite that has an uh, ultraviolet camera on it. And so they've been studying it for the past several years, and they've noticed that it actually, the aurora on Mars is seasonal. So what happens is it's most intense when it's summer in the southern hemisphere of Mars, which is also when Mars is closest to the sun. So like Earth, Mars's orbit uh, is a little bit elliptical, and so it uh, varies a little bit in distance. So when it's closest, when the southern uh, part of Mars is exposed to the sun, uh, that's also when it's the warmest. So, so what they found was that this, um, these aurora were brightest during the period in which Mars is the warmest and when its atmosphere is the most active. And it occurs when there's hydrogen in the upper atmosphere. So, so you're seeing this seasonal level of how much hydrogen there is in the upper atmosphere. And that's fed by water vapor. Right. And this, and this is the stuff that's that's being blasted away from Mars by the sun's solar wind, right? So you're sort of, exactly. you're sort of exactly. watching so, Mars die. Yes, that's that's kind of the interesting thing, is yeah. that this, this aurora is showing the seasonal loss of water vapor from Mars, which, you know, is one of the mechanisms for how you would have a drier Mars instead of a wet Mars, because Mars used to be wet 
in its early history. So do we have like that kind of a, a proton auroras here on Earth as well? We do, but it's 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 not the main thing that people talk about. Right. So, it's, so because there is hydrogen in our upper atmosphere. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. So we're going to have water and vapor so, as well. So it is there, but but it's not the dominant aurora that we talk about. Right. We also have a strong magnetic field. So on, on Mars, there really isn't a whole lot of magnetic field. So so this aurora actually happens on the sun side of Mars. It's not in the dark skies of Mars because what's happening is the solar wind is just literally slamming in to, to the solar side of Mars. Um, do we, I mean, we know that Mars has almost no magnetic field and definitely no global magnetosphere today. Um, do we think that it had one in the past? I, that I'm not sure about. Um, I, I don't know how much evidence there is for the, the history of the magnetic field of Mars. There's a lot of evidence for the history of, of a wet Mars, both geologically and just in terms of its own evolution. So we know it was very wet. We know it had oceans and rivers. Um, but but I'm, I'm not sure about how much of the magnetic field it had. Yeah, yeah. And I wonder, I sort of think about this, like on the one hand, uh, this is a way to chart the water loss to sort of really track. And I wonder if, if it could even be used to help figure out some sources of the, of the water that are beyond, like we know there's big polar ice caps. And so during the summertime, maybe some of that is, is sublimating off of the ice caps and directly into the atmosphere. But maybe you could get to a point where you're actually watching these auroras form because there's water vapor that's emanating from various sources of water that you didn't necessarily know. So I wonder sort of how far along that, that process they are. Right. I mean, they've, they've had a few seasons now. So I think it's yeah. like five or six years is how long uh, they've had, um, you know, the observatory of this. So it's, it's, you know, as you get more satellites, as you get more observatories, as you get more ground-based stuff, you know, you're, we're going to start seeing the dynamic picture of Mars both now and what it was in the past. I don't know if you saw, there was a piece of research that just came out. We actually had this on, on universe today yesterday, I think or two days ago that there's, it looks like there's a lot more um, water on Mars, very close to the surface, you know, like frozen, but frozen mm-hmm. into the regolith and uh, so easy to get. You could dig it out with a shovel. Yes. Yeah, it's the visual of that. Just pull out your little pitchfork. Yeah, dig and pull some water, and then use dig that. And get some water. Yeah, yep. and then use that to make fuel and air and 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 what and plastic and whatever you need. Um, so it's, yeah. a, it's a pretty great idea. So so it could very well be that in fact it makes a lot more sense for future uh, visitors to Mars to head closer to the poles than to be down near the equator where it's warm but dry. Right. And that's, that's kind of a, a, a question that I think that's still being answered is how much of the water of early Mars is now frozen into the, into the crust, into below the surface, and how much of it actually was just lost. Right. You know, and that's in terms of a, a colonization aspect, that's a big question because if there are large sources of water you can tap into, that makes colonization much, much easier. Mm-hmm. And and even down the road, if you can warm it up any amount, then you can start to release some of that water and some of the and have it make its way to the to some of the lowlands and and build up the density of the atmosphere and that'd be great. Exactly, uh, and that's that's what they're, they're trying to do in the expanse. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and the artificial magnetic field, which I think is neat. Every now and then you get a they've, they've got these satellites that create the artificial magnetic field for Mars. Every now and then in the animation, you'll catch a glimpse of it. Oh, that's so cool. They've, they've, it's amazing how much they've thought of, of everything. Again, if you haven't been watching The Expanse, uh, I just raved about it actually on one of my question shows on, on my YouTube channel. We talked about it on, um, on Monday. I, so, it's such a good show. I'm so glad. Um, all right. Well, we've reached the, the end of our time. Brian, you're on my screen. So tell us what you're working on and uh, where people, people can find out more. Uh, let's see. I'm going to be putting up an article tomorrow on, on oxygen uh, and the history of oxygen on exoplanets. 
Um, I think there's already a, a universe today article that beat me to it. So, Oh, so you're going to put it somewhere else. So, so this will be probably somewhere else, okay. but, um, but yeah, you can find me, uh, sometimes I write on Forbes and I write on my own website, which is Brian That's kind of where you can find most of my stuff. And, uh, and then on Twitter from time to time. Excellent. Uh, Pamela, uh, what are you working on and, uh, and where and where can people find out more? I guess you've sort of told us what you're working on. Well, I have many things going That's on. True. You know this about me. So so this weekend we are going to be doing a 40-hour straight hangout-a-thon once again. And in fact, you know this because mm-hmm. both you and Brian are going to be guests at various hours during the event. So if you've always thought science needed more funding and you're willing to give a few dollars to that idea, show up, support us. You can learn more at hangoutathon.org or just tune in anytime this weekend at twitch.tv slash CosmoQuestX. 40 hours of guests, art, science, space-related cooking, and um, raising funds for what I hope you feel is a good cause. Awesome. And uh, Pam... Uh, what Boy, are you that working on? Fabulous. <laughs> yeah. Second book yep. after this one. This one's uh, still available on Amazon. I'm teaching a class that's very local here in Thousand Oaks, but we've really tuned into what people want and uh, had a really lot, lot of fun this last time. Uh, just finished last night. I've got several meetups across the country. Really want to bring this to people. What can you do? What can you see? Where where can you go? What kinds of things are available online? You know, all about action for regular folks. I think they get left behind a lot of times and I really want to help, you know, bring them into this. It's going to be a space age very soon, I think. I think we're already about there. time. We're already there. And yeah, exactly. Yeah. About time. The vanguard right. of it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Thanks. So we uh, released a video this week about the predictions of 100 million exoplanets by 2050. Uh, so definitely check that out on my YouTube channel. And we've been posting a ton of really cool news onto Universe Today. So as always, uh, check out Universe Today. Um, I'm going to put everyone back on my screen. Uh, there we all are. Uh Thank you so much, everybody, for watching us today. What an amazing guest. That was really exciting. It's such a treat to talk with Anita. Um, we need to definitely get her back on the show sometime. Um, thanks to Nancy, uh, I believe, for organizing this one. And uh, thanks to all the moderators, everyone who is simulcasting this both on YouTube and on Twitch. Um, couldn't uh, really couldn't I, I couldn't handle that additional engineering challenge broadcasting challenge so thank you so much for doing that everybody um and thanks to all my co-hosts this week uh appreciate you joining me and we will see all of you i don't know when next i think <laughs> a week from today is like christmas i don't think we're doing an episode on christmas so um nancy will tell us when let's see the next astronomy cast is on Sat- Sunday. We're going to be doing that on Sunday at 11 a.m. Pacific. Um, and I don't know what the state of the weekly space hangout is. Oh, there we go. In three weeks. So no episode for the next two weeks. And then we'll be back possibly from Honolulu because we're all <laughs> going to be at the American Astronomical Society meeting in Honolulu. So, all right, everybody. We'll see you all next year, next decade. Thanks, everyone. Happy holidays. Good night. Bye. Across 10 years and more than 12 million downloads, we've brought you day after day of content. Thank you for making this possible. Now we've added a new way to donate to 365 Days of Astronomy to support editing, hosting, and production costs. Just visit www.patreon.com forward slash 365 Days of Astronomy and donate as much as you can. Share the podcast with your friends and send the Patreon link to them too. Every bit helps. As we head toward our 10th anniversary on January 1st, 2019, we have to ask, what in the cosmos do you want to hear about? Let us know by emailing us at info at 365daysofastronomy.org. Thank you. You are listening to the IYA 365 Days of Astronomy podcast.
The 365 Days of Astronomy podcast is produced by the Planetary Science Institute. Audio post-production by Richard Drum. Bandwidth donated by Libsyn.com and Wizard Media. You may reproduce and distribute this audio for non-commercial purposes. Please consider supporting the podcast with a few dollars or euros. Visit us on the web at 365daysofastronomy.org or email us at info at 365daysofastronomy.org. This year we will celebrate the Year of Everyday Astronomers as we embrace amateur astronomer contributions and the importance of citizen science. Join us and share your story. Until tomorrow, goodbye. Goodbye.